Hello, and thanks for downloading my podcast, all about the third episode of the BBC show Troy, Fall of a City. My name is Ancient Blogger, and you can find me on Twitter, at Ancient Blogger, and I have a website too, ancientblogger.com, where there's, well, loads of stuff. Oh, and if you're listening to this on iTunes, please leave a review if you can, and if you can't, well, then still leave a review. We're almost halfway through this series. Episode 3 was titled Siege, which I hope would be a bit more than what it was. Nonetheless, there were two elements to it which I think are worth unwrapping a bit more. The first, of course, being siegecraft in ancient Greece, and the other, a bit of clarity as to Helen's wedding with Menelaus. I'm a fan of a good wedding. Few things in life seem to embrace the concept of Greek tragedy more than a wedding. Politics, family squabbles, and drunken behaviour. It's all there. I mentioned in last week's podcast about the wedding of Helen, and some aspects to the show, particularly Achilles' visit to Helen, make this as good a moment as any to go over it again. When Helen was due to be married, she had a suitably large book of suitors, which included Ajax, Diomedes, Philoctetes, Idomenus, and even Patroclus. Bethany Hughes, in her book Helen of Troy, reckons there were between 29 to 99 of them. And by the way, I, rec- I can really recommend Bethany's book. And I'm not on commission, but if your interest in Helen has been piqued in any way by this series, uh, then it's a great read. One name does seem to be absent from any list I could find, and that was Achilles. And it's perhaps not that surprising, as he was most likely too young at that point. In fact, the whole situation with the suitors of Helen is a good example of trying to find a single story amongst a tangle of myths which give differing accounts. I've even read, for example, that Menelaus, the eventual groom, was absent, which begs the question how exactly he ended up with her. I should underline the point that this is one version of the myth. In others, Menelaus is present and duly chosen, and in some myths, even chosen by Helen herself. But in the case of the other myths, where Menelaus or Agamemnon wins Helen, we should ask ourselves how this might have happened. Bethany Hughes suggests the result of a combination of who offered the greatest prize and who won in some sort of athletic contest, possibly wrestling. What formed the qualification for Helen's hand is secondary to the idea of a competition for it. Competition was prominent in the Greek consciousness. It was here where the divine might mark you out for favour. In the Iliad, the most famous form this takes is the funeral games for, well, well, I don't want to spoil it. As for how this is referenced in the episode, then perhaps the tent scene might be where we can find it. After all, we saw Agamemnon and Menelaus wrestle with each other, with Agamemnon winning, and making a little comment to his brother about how he won her for him. It just seems, as much as enjoying competitions, the ancient Greeks loved making those awkward family moments. If only boxing days had existed back then. We'll move now to the siege, and credit should be given for attempting to indicate how bad things can get for any besieged city, even though it was used as a device to make Helen win the people of Troy around, a kind of Helen of hearts. The main accounts of Greek siegecraft come to us in Thucydides' Peloponnesian War, which concerns events in the late 5th century BC. So we have to be mindful of extrapolating this back across the centuries, yet the basic premise of siege in the Iliad seems to have been represented in the accounts of the 5th century, where the main tactic was to encircle the city or town and strangle it into submission by waiting it out. Other civilizations, such as the Assyrians, were happy to lay siege and use battering rams as well as quite technical equipment to storm the walls. In fact, one article which I'm planning on putting on my website argues that the Trojan horse was the name of one type of siege engine known about at this time. 
As a general rule, the Greeks of the Archaic and Classical period don't seem particularly sold on sieges. If undertaken, there were small blockades. And it's easy to see why. Without the ability to assault fortifications, it does become a waiting contest. The armies of the Greek city-states of the 5th century BC lacked the resources needed for this and their technical ability. Their armies were often citizen soldiers who weren't exactly keen on sticking around too long. Many had farms to work and other had jobs back home. Strategically, it also left you very vulnerable to any army who might come literally knocking at your door. Needless to say, the inventiveness of the Greeks was channelled into quickening this process of siege. Adrian Mare mentions one such instance in Greek fire, poison arrows and scorpion bombs. Again, this isn't a plug, I actually bought this for myself, and it's a great book. Anyway, Mare recounts the tale of Kira in 590 BC. Dependent on which account you believe, the siege was successful after water pipes serving the city had been cut. In one, hellebore is then introduced into the water supply, making everyone violently ill with diarrhoea. The attacking force then took the city and made sure they washed their hands after. Herodotus has it that the first military venture by the Spartans overseas was to lay siege to Samos. Though they pressed hard, they only lasted 40 days before giving up and sailing back home. In the 5th century, much of our reports concerning sieges is in the context of the Peloponnesian War and the lead up to it. And Thucydides records a very interesting and innovative tactic by Greek standards taken by the Spartans at Plataea at the outset of the Peloponnesian War. Rather than simply encircle and wait, the Spartans built a ramp of earth to try and get over the walls. The Plataeans countered, undermining the ramp and raising their wall. The Spartans then reverted back to the tried and tested, wait them out method. This did eventually work, which I suppose points to it why it was just that, the tried and tested way. In the account of Plataea, Thucydides does refer to siege engines. We're not exactly sure what these are, though it's likely these were small structures, for example, covered battering rams. They're also mentioned as being used by Nicias, the Athenian general, in his expedition against the island of Minoa. As these are sighted on ships, it's probably not covered rams, but ladders or something similar. In either case, more crafty ideas were being used, but we're still some way from the large-scale wheeled towers and the likes you're probably thinking of. It wasn't just Sparta who had mixed fortune with sieges. Athens was quite capable of illustrating the cons associated with this, and whilst they had successes with the small naval blockades, two examples of Athenian sieges do well to give us a wider appreciation of them. Miltiades, the hero of Marathon, made a siege on the island of Paris after taking 70 ships with him and effectively telling no one. The siege lasted 26 days before he sailed back and he faced a fine, but paid a much larger one, that of his life. You see, whilst climbing a fence during the siege, Miltiades fell and damaged his leg. Gangrene set in, which proved fatal upon his return. The Athenian siege of Potidaea combined the idea of illness and financial cost and took it up a few levels. Though Athens eventually took the city after two years, the besiegers went down with a plague, which killed a thousand hoplites, a quarter of their force. It also cost a princely sum 2,000 talents. The question might be, how do you force a successful siege? Well... The answer wasn't exactly heroic. Most cities in classical Greece have various factions, be it a political group or leading family. The hope for any would-be besiegers was that they could make a deal with one of these factions in the city, who would then leave the back doors open. A disgruntled group promised power and given a free hand with a perfect candidate. Well, sometimes, of course, it went well and others it didn't. In Plataea, a faction allowed a force of Theban soldiers into the city. 
Rather than immediately wipe out their political opponents, the betrayers dawdled, and when the locals worked out what was going on, they repelled the force, who were both outnumbered and really didn't know where they were in terms of street layouts. Uh, they were soundly beaten. My favourite siege facepalm moment, though, dates to a bit later. Pyrrhus, a famed general, wanted to take Argos and went the sneaky route, with a faction leaving the gate open. Unfortunately for him, the elephants he had, animals famed throughout time for their ability both to sneak and not to be massive loud animals, gave the game away. Actually, I feel a bit bad about that, because it wasn't the elephant's fault. It was actually because they were too tall to get in through the gate. Fighting in the streets is never a sound option for an invading force. You can easily be ambushed and split up, and then there's the danger from above. A common tactic would see the locals hurl things down at you from the rooftops. As the story goes, Pyrrhus was engaged in a duel, when the mother of the chap he was fighting landed a roof tail right on his head, and that was the end of Pyrrhus. Sadly, this week we had no elephants. There was a spy dog, though, and I hope it wasn't the same dog killed in action. In general, it was a bad week for animals. A horse and a dove joined the dog in the animal version of the Elysian Fields. As you might have imagined, the hashtag Troy Fall of a City wasn't particularly kind, and I can only hope we see a few more gods and a bit more Cassandra in the next episode. I have heard that Amazons will appear at some point, and when they do, I will quickly retweet an Amazon pumpkin I did for Halloween and a vlog on an Amazon vase, because... Well, why not? Till the next podcast then, take care. Feel free to come and say hi on Twitter. I'm at AncientBlogger. Come and see my website, ancientblogger.com. Until then, though, keep safe and take care. Infamy! Infamy! They've all got it in for me!